And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the Tuesday edition of The Real Investment Show. I'm your host, Lance Roberts, of course. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Our latest outlook and something we'll talk about today is on the website talking about, well, no recession now, but recession likely in 2023. We'll talk about that this morning along with uh, quite a few other stories. Walmart out this morning announcing earnings, beating estimates, $1.77 versus $1.62, sticking with their second half outlook from what they reported in the first quarter. So remember, uh, Walmart had come out in the first quarter, guided down, you know, pretty sharply for the second quarter of the year in terms of retail sales, slower foot traffic, inventory builds. Um, of course, you know, we're talking about laying off employees, uh, hiring freezes, etc. So sticking with that second half outlook, uh, stock is trading up this morning, though, because they did beat estimates. So again, you know, uh, the stock had already taken a pretty good hit earlier this year. So again, just kind of recovering some of that. And of course, that's also been kind of in line with this recovery of the market that we've seen here over the last few weeks. Again, you know, everybody's getting very bullish now. Lots of good bullish articles coming out. You know, the number of stocks trading now above their 50-day moving average has reached 90% of the S&P 500 components. So uh, historically, that suggests higher highs, right? And so it's interesting when you think about this, you know, just a few weeks ago, everybody was super bearish in the markets and there was, there was literally no reason to be invested. Uh, we were getting phone calls like, did you get me out of the markets? And, you know, now, you know, markets have been performing very well. And now everybody can't wait to get into the market. So it's always interesting just to see how fast psychology changes in the markets because, you know, this is what leads us to make bad investment decisions over time. You know, either we sell out of the markets or we try to get into the market all the way. Um, Markets are very overbought here short term. We're currently trading well above the 50-day moving average. We have a nearly 9% deviation above the 50-day moving average. Now, all that means is is that, as we've talked about before, we've kind of just stretched the rubber band, so to speak, as far as we can in one direction. You're going to get a pullback here at some point. So again, if you've kind of missed this rally and you're looking to get into the markets and have more equity exposure, that's fine. Certainly some some bullish technical reasons to do that. Um, But look for a pullback here. Probably somewhere right around 4,000 on the S&P. Certainly wouldn't be out of the question. We're currently about 4,280 on the S&P. So a pullback a bit here of, you know, 2-3%, not surprising. Give you a good opportunity to add some exposure, work off some of these more overbought conditions that we've been talking about now for the last, you know, few days. Uh, and again, markets just kind of, you know, ebb from one side of, of the flow to the other. And, and we went from extremely bearish and now we're getting back to extremely bullish and that's not surprising. You know, again, a couple of things here, though, is always interesting is that the markets are rallying on the expectations we've said before that the Fed is about to pivot, that September will be the last rate hike and soon we'll be back to cutting rates and doing QE. But if that's the case, that's not really bullish because if the Fed is having to come back and cut rates and do QE, that means that markets aren't doing well, right? They're trying to bail out financial instability. So while we're rallying into this thesis that the Fed is almost done hiking rates, the consequence of them not hiking rates historically has been a recession. And this is why we were talking about a minute ago, 
that when you read today's article that's on the website talking about no recession now, of course, everybody's looking to the first two quarters of this year going, oh, that was the recession. No, really probably wasn't because there's other indicators that feed into that recession number other than just two negative quarters GDP growth. And if we start to see revisions to Q2 that take it positive, which is possible because of the employment data, then all of a sudden um, we don't have a recession. So where's the recession, right? And, and that's going to be the question. And again, you know, when you take a look at what's going on with manufacturing and services and retail sales, et cetera, that all still kind of suggests that the recession part is coming. We're not quite there yet. The economy's definitely slowing down. There's, there's no doubt about that. Manufacturing indexes are all pushing into contractionary territory. And importantly, as we saw yesterday, um, we've had lots of these regional Fed manufacturing surveys out as of late, which are clearly kind of that more real-time data about the economy, new orders are dropping quickly. In other words, people placing new orders on the manufacturing side are pulling back quickly, which suggests that demand, right, for goods or services are, are slowing down, and so people aren't ordering as much. And, and before, they were having to order a whole lot because they had no supply because of the economic shutdown. Now they've got too much inventory and they're not ordering more stuff. They're just trying to sell the stuff they have. Again, this goes back to Walmart and, and uh, Target and others that have talked about these inventory overhangs that have occurred. They were, they were front-loading a lot of this inventory, expecting this, this liquidity-driven demand from checks to households to continue. And that's now, with that money running out, that demand is now slowing fairly quickly. Of course, high inflation also impacts that as well. So, Again, as we kind of look at this, there's certainly a lot of challenges ahead of the markets on a fundamental basis, and that's the real challenge here for investors. You know, technically, again, a lot of good bullish things that are going on. The 50 days crossed above, uh, sorry, the 20-day moving average is crossed above the 50-day moving average. It will probably cross above the 100-day moving average in the next day or so. Um, the markets are challenge, challenging right now. The 200-day moving average, a break above the 200-day, certainly confirms you know, that the markets are certainly back into more bullish footing. But we're pushing right up on that 200-day moving average. You know, just a terrific rally that we've had here over the last couple of weeks. It's been great. Lots of speculation in the markets, of course. A lot of this rally has been short covering. Uh, again, you know, because of the sell-off we had earlier this year, we had all that negative sentiment. We had a lot of, a lot, a lot, a lot of shorts in the markets, and so uh, a big chunk of this rally over the last really kind of two weeks has been a tremendous amount of, of short covering. That's those short positions having to be bought in uh, to cover them. That's helping fuel this advance as shorts have to cover their positions. Now, interestingly. And something worth considering, this rally has been on very low volume. If we take a look at on, on balance volume, right, which is kind of the, the, the volume of buying and selling balanced out, there really hasn't been a lot of commitment to this rally. So it's been a low volume rally on that basis. And again, that kind of supports this idea. A lot of people talking about this being a bear market rally, and, and that's certainly still a potential here. Um, and there's certainly some ingredients, again, short covering, light volume, et cetera, suggests this is, you know, a, a could be a, a bear market rally. We won't know until this works out. But again, on the other side, when we take a look at a lot of the technical data, right, the number of stocks above the 50-day moving average, the, you know, the moving average crossovers, uh, you know, where supports are, those are being lifted here. Those technical indicators suggest that we're back into a more bullish mode. Uh, again, this is a very challenging market. Why I suggest that we just be careful here 
And as we talk a little bit more this morning about some of the data that points to an economic recession next year and what that might do to stocks, we also have to remember that we're still combating very high rates of inflation. The Fed is hiking rates. And there's certainly reasons that we want to be cautionary, you know, right now, you know, particularly with our investment capital. Um, again, it's, you know, this is a, a, has been a very nice rally. And again, a lot of people were trapped. In, you know, if you didn't like this first part of the year, and you didn't like being down, this, you know, we talked about you're going to get a rally here. This is your rally um, to sell into and, and rebalance that risk in your portfolio. And again, this is where most people make mistakes. Now everybody's expecting this market rally just to take off, and we're in a new bull market. That could be the case. But even if you rebalance risk here and, and reduce exposure a bit, get yourself kind of back to, to a balance you feel good with, you know, that doesn't mean you can't come back and add equity exposure later when we get a pullback in the market because we will get opportunities. We will get corrective periods that will allow you to add exposure. So again, you don't have to be all in all the time. Just kind of manage that risk as we kind of go along here. Okay, quick break. We'll come back. More of The Real Investment Show. Why no recession now, but in 2023? We'll talk about that and a whole lot more. Be right back. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Hi, Lance Roberts here. If you're like most people, your 401k plan represents the bulk of your retirement assets. And unfortunately for many, managing your 401k plan can be difficult. There's so many choices, so many things to consider. With just a quick email, a couple of questions, you can put RIA advisors to work for you managing your 401k plan. Get started right now at the website, realinvestmentadvice.com, or simply call our toll-free number, 855-RIA-PLAN, or again, simply online at realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. Back to the show this morning. I'm Real Science Roberts, of course, and uh, talk a little bit about this, you know, kind of idea of no recession in 2022, and you know, potentially one in 2023. This is, and again, you know, a lot of commentary out here lately. You know, kind of the mainstream media. First two quarters were negative. That means we're in a recession, and that's not necessarily the case. Um, you know, it could still be classified as a recession if the you know, possible, right? Because you do have two negative quarters, and that is kind of one of the of the measures of a recession in the economy. But there's other factors that play into it as well. It's not just two negative quarters. Um, if you remember back in 2012, we had deep, deep manufacturing, you know, uh, numbers, and and there was a lot of concern about a recession because all of the manufacturing indexes, ISMs, etc., were all negative, and we ne we didn't have a recession. Because the service sector, which is now about 80% of the economy, was strong enough to keep employment and other functions working. So we, we avoided a recession in 2012 because of that. And, and again, this is kind of that same environment we have now where, you know, we've got very weak manufacturing data, but employment's still strong and services are still doing okay and consumers are still spending. And, and again, as we just saw with Walmart's earnings this morning, people still shopping. Now, again, remember, though, we measure things in dollars, not in volumes. So, you know, Walmart doesn't report we sold, you know, 4 million units, right? They said we sold so much in dollars. That means just people are paying more for the same amount of stuff. You know, I took my son, uh, my son moved to A&M 
over the weekend. And so, um, you know, my wife and I did the obligatory, you know, trip up to see his new place and then to take him to Target to get, you know, his essentials that he needed. And, you know, $500 later walking out of Target, you know, I realized that, you know, inflation is a thing. And, you know, it's just it's just that's, you know, where we are right now. And, you know, this is the these are the things. So there's a lot of different, you know, factors that feed into this. But, you know, as we talked about before, is that, you know, we've seen these periods historically where, you know, we we see negative growth in the economy. And while, yes, and, and again, we've had two negative quarters here, you know, and again, as I said, that doesn't necessarily mean we're in a recession, but what is because, you know, we had two negative quarters back in 2020 and that was a recession, right? Because we shut down the economy. It was a very short recession. It lasted a total of about three months and we were back out of it because of all that infusion of liquidity. So you, you point back and say, yeah, two negative quarters of GDP had a recession. Right. And then you had this massive surge of 30 percent of economic growth following that because of you know, massive influxes of, of capital being sent to, you know, checks to households. So here we are again, two negative quarters, you know, uh, of GDP growth and, you know, not deep, deep negative growth, but, you know, there and you're going, okay, well, that's a recession. But again, as we talk about these other factors, that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, and again, it's, it's not what you, <laughs> it's like the old saying, you know, I don't think that means what you think it means. Um, you know, it, it's potential here we could see a little bit different. And again, if we take a look at the ISM composite index, and that's a good example of what I'm talking about. So ISM, which is the Institute of Supply Manufacturing, and, you know, this is the index that everybody kind of looks at as the measure of the markets. And if we take a composite of those two indexes, so it, it, it measures manufacturing and non-manufacturing. So it's, they've got one index for the manufacturing side of the business. They've got one index for the, for the services side of the business, the non-manufacturing. And if we just take a, a, an average of those two, we're still in expansionary territory, right? We haven't gotten down to contractionary territory in the economy. So again, that's just another reason why we're probably not in a recession right now. But importantly, it's the trend of the data that is most important, right? If you know, if you're standing at the bottom of a of a of a high rise and somebody drops a bowling ball off the high rise, right? And you're watching it fall right towards you, you know, you're like, "Well, I'm not dead yet." <laughs> you know, but it's it just takes time for the bowling ball to reach you. And this is the same way with economic data. It's in a decline. It's clearly moving towards that recessionary territory. It's clearly telling us that there is weakness in the economy, but we're not there yet, right? The economy's not there yet, but the trend of the data is moving that direction. It's clearly telling us that economic growth is slowing here and that we've potentially got you know, some issues later on. And again, this is what I'm saying. Maybe not in the maybe the first two quarters of this year, even though they were negative growth, weren't really, you know, the recession. But maybe that's still coming, and that's kind of what this data is telling us. And you know, and and you know, and again, as I said, you know, employment remains very strong. That's you know still at historically low levels. But importantly, unemployment, right? And this is one of those big stories. Unemployment. Everybody's like the the Federal Reserve is like unemployment is still very strong. We're just 
printed 400,000 jobs. No sign of a recession. The problem with employment, and if you take a look at a chart of employment, what you see is, is that employment trends down and down and down. It's like, oh, great, we got great employment. And all of a sudden, it spikes straight up. It doesn't, it doesn't take the stairs up, right? It's, it's an elevator up and a staircase down. <laughs> so when, you know, when things change in the economy and we get into a recession, before you actually know that we're in a recession, unemployment will be spiking higher. And that is really kind of your telltale sign the recession's coming. And we don't have that yet. Again, another kind of one of those indicators that could come. And consumer confidence is clearly telling us that there is trouble in the economy. And if consumers contract, remember, businesses operate on the basis of demand. So if I've got a lot of demand in my business and I'm going to hire more employees, if I don't have any demand in my business, I'm going to fire employees. And that's why you see unemployment spike up. You don't see it kind of just trend up because when companies realize that demand is broken, they begin laying off and terminating employees to shelter their profitability of their business. And that's why unemployment is, is a very rapid rise, not a slow rise. And consumer confidence is at levels right now that are telling us that the consumer is contracting. Right? right now, they're able to spend money because they're tapping into credit cards and they're, and they're able to make ends meet. But you know, this is something that has a, has a limit to the time that they can do that. And eventually, and, and we're seeing this now, consumers are having to make this choice between you know, what, they, what they have to spend and what, they, what they're spending it on. And, and I run this chart that looks at the historical standard of living for the average family and the gap between what it takes to fill that. And, you know, what's important about this is that if we take a look back in history, you know, in the in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the amount of income and savings that households had was greater than the cost of living. So I could, so in other words, what, what you know, the, the data tells you is that people had enough money to sustain their cost of living and have some money in the bank. And savings rates were high back then, you know, 8% savings rates. So people were able to save money. They didn't have any credit card debt to speak of at all. Credit cards were kind of something that only really rich people had. And it was like, wow, they've got a credit card. That's pretty cool. But for the most part, everybody wrote checks. And, and young kids today have no idea what a checkbook looks like. But back in the day, we wrote checks or paid cash. That was the thing. Beginning in, in really 2009, after the financial crisis, that's where really the, the demarcation came to where consumers could no longer support that standard of living. And they had to, in other words, the income and the savings they had did not keep up with the cost of living. So they had to turn to credit card debt to do that. And today, you know, and it's interesting because there was a, you know, right after 2020, when we started doing all these checks, President Biden came out and said, I'm, you know, my plan will reduce poverty in the U.S. And I wrote an article back then as, as saying that, yeah, it'll reduce poverty by 40% for about one second. And which is exactly what happened because for just a moment, because of all these checks to households, for just a moment, households were able to sustain their standard of living and have a little bit left over. 
But now that those checks have run out and the cost of living has surged so much, we're now back at a record level gap. It currently takes about $6,900 a year in additional credit on average just to, just to fill the gap between the cost of living and income and savings. So in other words, my wages, my income, my savings, you know, that is, is not enough to fill that standard of living. And it takes me another $6,900 in credit. And that's why we're seeing credit card debt ramp up to records right now because of that. So this all suggests that, uh, again, that a recession is still coming. We're not there yet, but it's coming. And, and one of the kind of the key measures that we look at, one of the best forward indicators of recessions is the leading economic index. And we also run an index, you know, in our in, in shop here called our economic output composite index, which has about 100 different components to it. It, it looks at... Uh, it combines the manufacturing, the services, leading indicators, um, you know, economic, global economic indicators, everything into one kind of composite index. And both of these have a very high correlation to, to leading inflationary or sorry, recessionary outcomes in the economy. And, and the leading economic index, if you look at the six month rate of change of the leading economic index, it is one of the best leading indicators of a recession and both both our economic composite index and the six-month rate of change of, of leading economic indicators which have a very high correlation to each other because they're the same thing um, are both saying that we're in a slowdown now and if it doesn't turn pretty quickly and begin to show some signs of strength we will be in a recession by next year so again a lot of indicators suggesting that the recession's still coming and if that's the case, that means earnings will decline. Earnings will be weaker next year, and prices will have to adjust for weaker earnings growth, which suggests that maybe, just maybe, we're not back in the bull market just yet. Be right back after the break. The Real Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. In 1999, a fiduciary group of financial advisors were busted by corporate giants for trying to operate in their clients' best interest. These men promptly escaped from a high-cost margin environment to the Houston Energy Corridor. Today, still excoriated by their former employers, they survive as protectors of others' fortunes. If you have a problem about preserving capital, if no one else can help, and you can find them right here, maybe you should hire the RIA team. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. Welcome back to the show this morning. Uh, interesting article in the U.S. Sun today. Ice cream and beer lovers can now enjoy the two treats at the same time after Miller High Life rolls out a unique offering. The classic beer brand is announcing its new dive bars uh, on Monday, and they are full of surprising flavors. In the wake of the ice cream trends that have reached brand new heights, 
such as ketchup, ice pops from French's, and Grey Poupon, uh, the frozen dessert. Just not, just not, uh, just doesn't make you want to just run out and buy them, does it? No. Uh, Miller High Life has turned up with adult ice cream brand Tipsy Scoop. And uh, the partnership aims to create um, the best alcohol-infused ice cream from the champagne of beers. Food and wine. This is written by Food and Wine. Um, so they <laughs> infused beer into the dairy dessert. It has 3% alcohol. So basically, if you eat enough ice cream, you can get drunk and fat at the same time, um, which kind of the same thing happens with beer. Uh, anyway, some of the, the flavor implementations are symbolic, like the inclusion of a smoky tobacco flavor and the caramel added to represent the feeling of a sticky dive bar floor. Mm, sounds appetizing. Others are literal, like the inclusion of peanuts to remind the palate of the essential dive bar snack and carbonated candies are shuffled into the mix to um, intended to mimic the fizziness that beer lovers crave. Of course, you can't get CO2 right now because that's damaging the planet. Um, <laughs> the smooth, dark chocolate finish is meant to evoke the familiar wood and intimate lighting of many dive, that many dive bar shares. Again, none of this is just really making me want to run out and buy... <laughs> The ice cream. It's not cheap either. No, it's not cheap. It's uh, what six ninety five a bar. Yeah, yeah, pretty pricey. But again, you know the cho the Klondike Choco Taco is uh, been discontinued. Did you ever have one of those? No, I didn't either, and I kind of felt like I missed out. Yeah, uh, apparently because they're selling for seven hundred ninety five dollars <sighs> on eBay. Really. Man, people will buy anything after it's oh, discontinued. That's, that's true. You know, I've yeah. never had a Choco Taco, but damn, I want one now that I can't get it. <laughs> Speaking of can't get it anymore uh, because of climate change, the iconic manufacturer of the Dodge Challengers and Chargers, which you know have made a, a real resurgence here over the last few years, really since about 2006, they were... Uh, you know, they were kind of relaunched uh, under the Dodge brand and they had the Dodge Challengers and the Chargers. And of course, from that, they made some real ground pounders of uh, the Hellcat and, and Scat Packs and others. And the Hellcat has like 700 horsepower and, you know, big block engine and, and you know, just does stupid things you shouldn't do in a car on a, on a street. <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, I mean, these cars have sold really, really well and put really kind of Dodge back on the map. But that ends next year. Um, they will no longer be manufacturing the Challengers and the Chargers because of climate change. And this is ex you know, exactly what they were talking about. Um, I'll just read you a clip from this article. It's on CNBC this morning. Uh, Dodge has been able to juice profits from the vehicles, which have started pricing ranges from the low 30s to nearly $90,000 for its infamous Hellcat models. Again, that's the one with 700 horsepower to it. Uh, the Dodge with the Challenger and Charger, they really found a way to, to um, get that muscle, get to that muscle car route. And, and again, look, a lot of these people, you know, hunt for these 1971 Chargers that they do, you know, full remakes on and then sell them at Barrett Auction for like 150 grand. Um, the cars definitely express that. We're able to hold on to the essence of that. Having that clear DNA and clear expression of what they were supposed to be is helping make that transition. Um, what's that transition? It's the transition to electric. Dodd CEO Tim Kaniskas has alluded to the possibility that the Charger and Challenger names could be used 
for future electrified vehicles, including the forthcoming electric muscle car in 2024. He previously said he believes electrification, whether it's hybrid with less powerful engines or all electric models, will save what he has now called the golden age of muscle cars. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> Again, muscle car enthusiasts have this real knack for wanting to, you know, build big block engines that are loud and you know, noisy and powerful. Powerful. Well, look, electric engines are powerful. Oh yeah. Um, there's a there's this this interesting show that my wife and I watch on uh, Netflix called uh, Rust to Riches, mm -hmm. and this uh, um, garage out in California, it's Gotham Garages. He found a Prius, and he's like, <laughs> and he he wants to do his Gotham Garage makeover to this Prius and then sell it. And you know everybody's like a Prius, and he's like, you have no idea. This is a hot rod under a hood, and these cars are really a lot faster than what people think. So he's mm -hmm. done, he's doing this whole makeover on a Prius, which is pretty funny. Uh, you know, putting skirts on it and all kinds of stuff. But you know, it's just you know, even though Toyota didn't do a great job of you know building the you know um, the body of it to make it look attractive, if they would have put a sports car body on the Prius, it probably would have sold a whole lot better yeah. than making it look like a rolling lemon. But um, well, Dodge has the branding in place, though, for the electric yeah. vehicle, the Charger. I they mean, do. that would make perfect sense. Yeah, it would. But have it, you seen what Ford did to the Mustang? I know. That's, the problem is, is they start altering the design, the body design. Mm -hmm. If you leave the body design alone. Yeah. Right? Keep it looking like a Mustang. Yeah. The days of the Iron Block. So he, uh, Kaniskas goes on to say, the days of the Iron Block supercharged 6.2 liter V8 are numbered, unless you ask a motor enthusiast. <laughs> which I doubt that they will agree with you. But he says, uh, referring to like those in the Hellcat, he says, but the performance that these vehicles generate is not numbered. So it's, it's just, so it's going to be interesting. These, you know, these car companies are going all in on electric. So, you know, Ford's doing it, um, you know, in a big way, uh, as Brent just mentioned, the uh, all-electric uh, e-tron, which, uh, sorry, that's uh, Audi. Uh, the all-electric Mustang, um, Audi has the e-tron, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, the, the new Ford Lightning pickup truck, which is off the 150. You know, so again, you know, all these companies are making a transition. And in fact, another kind of sideline of this is that Detroit, which is where, you know, all these cars used to be manufactured, they're all moving south to manufacture them cheaper um, because of the cost of, of building an electric car. And again, you've got to get these price points down to where, you know, people can afford them again right now is, is you know, with like the problem with the Tesla is that they're so expensive that only, uh, uh, you know, kind of the upper income earners can can buy an EV. So if you want to have, you know, all electric vehicles, you know, across the country and you want to move in that direction, then, of course, you've got to get these price points down to levels that where people can afford them. And this is why used cars continue to sell in such strong numbers because people on the lower income basis, which by the way is a big chunk of the population, they can't afford these higher priced vehicles. So they're shopping used cars that they can buy for 10, 15, $20,000. And that's, that's where they have to live. And they have to finance those at really cheap rates in order just to afford the monthly payments. Again, as we've always talked about before, it's not an issue of the price of the car, it's the price of the payment. And when interest rates go up, the price of those payments go up and people can't afford the monthly payment. So it doesn't matter what you charge for the car. 
if I can get it cheap enough on the term of a monthly payment, people will buy it. And this is why we see a lot of this, you know, if you've ever wondered or thought about why you always see these car companies come out and they're like, oh, dealer incentives and 0% financing for qualified buyers and blah, blah, blah. Got to get that payment down to get those cars moved off the lot. And, you know, so interest rates matter a lot. And with the Fed hiking interest rates, those interest rates on financing, particularly shorter in, shorter duration financing terms, three years, five years, seven years, which is normally kind of your car loans, um, those rates get impacted pretty quick. Those rates go up because it's shorter term financing and they're, they're banked off against shorter term bills. So, you know, this is, this is going to be a challenge. And then not to mention, you know, the problem with just being able to p provide all the power to charge electric vehicles. So as you start making this transition into more and more electric vehicles, you're going to have battery supply problems, components for batteries to meet them. Of course, you've got problems with, you know, the power grid being able to handle the additional drag of consumption of energy. And, and you know, it's interesting, you know, we talk about, you know, out in California, they've got rolling blackouts and they, you know, ask people, hey, turn, turn up your AC, turn down your, you know, turn off your lights, you know, conserve energy. Because, you know, we just we don't have enough of it. Well, it's going to get worse the more that you have people charging vehicles, you know, on the system. Not to mention having to build out superchargers and all these other things that we've got to do. So, so again, the real viability, it, it's, you know, it's interesting to watch the, you know, automakers kind of jump off the cliff here with EVs and, and all trying to chase Tesla at this point. That's all this is right now. Everybody's looking at Tesla going, well, Tesla's doing a pretty good job here. And people are buying the product. Maybe we better get there. So everybody's kind of jumping off that ledge. But nobody's really kind of looking down the road as to saying, yeah, but once this happens, you know, what's going to happen? What's, what's the unintended consequence that nobody's looking at? And once you get to the part to where charging your electric vehicle is so freaking expensive, people start to make that shift back towards gasoline. You know, that's, that's you know, if you remember a while back, um, when gas prices, you know, previously back in 2008, 2009, when oil prices were spiking up and it was, you know, the kind of the end of the planet and the end of oil as we knew it, everybody was saying, you know, we got to get rid of the SUVs. And everybody was chunking their SUVs. We had people riding their bikes to work and all kinds of stuff because they couldn't afford to fill up their SUVs. And as soon as gas prices went down, guess what happened to SUV sales? Right back up. So, you know, at the end of the day, consumer drives the boat. We'll see what happens. Be right back after the break. news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com in 1999 a parafiduciary group of financial advisors were busted by corporate giants for trying to operate in their clients best interest these men promptly escaped from a high cost margin environment to the houston energy corridor today still excoriated by their former employers they survive as protectors of others' fortunes. If you have a problem about preserving capital, if no one else can help, and you can find them right here, maybe you should hire the RIA team. The Real Investment Show.
and welcome back to the show this morning, 647. Get ready to wrap up the show for the day, get you off to work, uh, of course, is uh, never fun, but something we got to do. <laughs> you know, one thing, uh, make sure and go by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Our latest report is out on the website talking about no recession now, but one probably in 2023. Of course, lots of debate on that, right? You know, can the Fed, you know, keep hiking rates to combat inflation and not cause a recession? And you know, there's there's arguments for that. Goldman Sachs out this morning saying that there is a potential that, you know, the, the Federal Reserve can do that and they can kind of navigate this, you know, this kind of, you know, environment to where they can, you know, combat inflation, but we still get growth out of the economy. It hasn't happened before, right? We go back to the, you know, 60s and 70s and you know, there's clear evidence that when the Fed was trying to hike rates back then that the economy did not fare well. In fact, more often than not, we kind of wound up in a recession or bear market or something because of the impact of higher rates on the economy and the costs that go along with higher rates. I mean, it's just it's just kind of, you know, common sense. But there's always hope, right? There's always hope the Fed can do this, and they just unfortunately never quite can do it. But there's always hope. And, and, you know, pretty much like 2009, we were in the middle of uh, 2008, in the middle of the, you know, people were coming out saying, you know, it's a soft landing scenario. Ben Bernanke, economy's going to be in a soft landing. We got this. Don't worry about it. Of course, it wasn't a soft landing at all. It was more like a head on crash. So, you know, that's where it is. But, you know, and, and, and we're trying to do things to you know, help promote things and, and do other stuff. And of course, uh, President Biden's expected to sign you know, this week the historic landmark bill of $700 billion um, that will supposedly lower the deficit and reduce inflation, right? It's the Inflation Reduction Act is the, the name of this, and that's a bold statement, but it will appear to reduce inflation. The, the, the bill actually won't reduce inflation. It'll actually cause inflation, but simply because of the rate of change of growth in the inflation, how we measure it, it will appear as if the bill reduced inflation, right? If you did nothing, right, inflation would, would, would go down. And we're already starting to see peak inflation now behind us. And, you know, that'll be a consequence of the math as we begin to compare year-over-year numbers, so if I add $700 billion to the economy over the course of the next 10 years, it's about $70 billion a year, it will actually add to inflation. But the rate of disinflation will be greater than what they're adding, so it'll still appear as if the Inflation Reduction Act is reducing inflation. From a marketing standpoint, whatever economists told them to do this was brilliant because you know, it's, it's almost a surefire win, especially with the Fed hiking rates. Doesn't mean you'll necessarily like the outcome. Experts are, of course, they're mixed on the benefits of this. And there are some potential benefits, obviously, to the supply side of the economy. But in the longer term, inflation should be under the control of the Fed. And we'll see how well they can control it because historically their track record has not been great at that, as I said. But um, as J.P. Morgan said uh, yesterday, over the horizon where the things are visible in the next year or two, we don't see big effects on either growth or inflation, for that matter, relative to this bill. You know, and where's where inflation right now? It's in gasoline, airfare, household energy, transportation, those type of things. Um, 
the the big chunk of inf uh, of inflation right now is coming from gasoline, and that's why we saw in the latest inflation report that reduction in gas prices offset the increases in everything else. Food prices went up, everything else went up, but gasoline prices came down. So it looked as if we actually had lo a lower rate of we had zero inflation, you know, for the month of, of July. But you know, again, how long gas prices will stay down is another question. You know, if we get another spike in gasoline prices, well, you know, you're going to, inflation is going to come back. Um, experts are mixed on the macroeconomic effects of the Inflation Reduction Act. The Tax Foundation forecast a negative 0.2% long-run GDP and a loss of 29,000 full-time equivalent jobs. Um, revenue raisers including in the bill are also expected to take substantial time to kick in meaning a wider budget deficit and worsening inflation. That's according to the Tax Foundation. So, you know, again, this is, you know, kind of the thing. And, it was, and it's interesting, you know, so part of this bill, we talked about, you know, hiring 87,000 IRS agents. Of course, that's going to be more tax audits for middle-class Americans, uh, extracting more capital and time. You know, when you're going through an audit, you have to spend money, right? You've got to hire an attorney or an accountant to help you, you know, deal with the audit. It's, or if not, if you're going to do it yourself, that's fine. Uh, generally not a good idea. But, you know, if you're going to fight it yourself, that's fine. But it's still your time that you're going to be involved in dealing with this audit, which means less productivity for, you know, households. So, again, you know, as you, as you start to see an increase in audits on middle-income Americans, that's, that's going to extract more tax revenue from middle-income Americans, which don't really have it right now anyway, you know, there's going to be, you know, a lot of pushback on this. Now, one thing about this uh, bill, by the way, is that just because Biden passes this bill now doesn't mean it's cemented in forever. And, you know, whoever takes office after the midterms, as an example, or, you know, uh, after the next election in 2024, can come back and defund the IRS, as an example, um, remove, you know, tax credits. So, so, you know, bills only live their life from one kind of administration to the next. Now, it, it may be that this bill, you know, survives longer term. Some bills do. But again, it wouldn't be surprising that if the conservative you know, Republicans take control of the, of the White House, Senate and Congress in 2024, that one of the first things they come in, come in to do is to unwind this bill. That wouldn't be surprising at all. So again, you know, while, while we're, we're talking about this now and we're talking about $700 billion spent over the next 10 years, so $70 billion a year into an, an economy of $20 trillion, you know, it's a very small, negligible impact to start with. But, you know, you know, while we're talking about it now, does again, doesn't mean it will survive the full 10 years. So, you know, it's also something we just have to remember about the way that kind of Washington works. But it is interesting because as we, you know, as you talk about this, the Inflation Reduction Act imposes a 15% corporate minimum tax rate. Well, that means that, you know, if corporations like Amazon have to pay a 15% minimum income tax, that's okay. They're just going to pass that cost on to you. So the prices of memberships are going to go up. The prices of subscriptions will go up. The prices of, of, of goods or services that you use are going to go up because those taxes and those extra costs get passed on to consumers. So again, it's, it's always those knockoff effects of these, of these bills and things that we pass. It's like, oh, this is a great idea. We're going to raise more revenue 
And we're only going to get it from this group of people, right? We're only going to get it from those billion-dollar-plus revenue corporations. Okay, sounds great. It gets passed down to everybody else. And it gets passed down to the suppliers. It gets passed down to the consumers. It gets passed down to the manufacturers. You know, everybody's going to get hit. So, you know, this, these things never operate in isolation. Um, the Joint Committee on Taxation estimates that only 150 taxpayers would be targeted and projects a 1.4% average increase in federal taxes for all income taxes. So uh, all income tax brackets. So in other words, um, even though we're going to only target 150 corporations that make over a billion dollars in revenue, that target is going, according, according to the, the Joint Committee on Taxation, is going to increase the average in uh, the average federal tax for all income brackets by 1.4 percent. Now that doesn't sound like a lot, but for Americans who are already living literally paycheck to paycheck, an additional 1.4 percent is a monthly payment for something. Right, so it's it's something you know it's buying groceries, it's something right, even if it's 50 bucks a year. That's something to come to, to households that are living, pay, literally living paycheck to paycheck every single year. So it does make a difference, um, even though it doesn't sound like a lot. Um, you know, so again, look, we're going to get through all of this ultimately. Um, you know, we're going to get through, you know, the slowdown in the economy. We're going to get back to growth eventually. We're going to get, you know, inflation's going to come down and, and we're going to look back on all this in hindsight and say, yeah, remember when? We were dealing with this. Whew, glad that's over. That's we're going to get there, right? Um, the question is: is when do we get there, and how long does it take to get there? And will you know spending more money in the economy, going further into debt, help that situation, or will it prolong it? And right, and this is, and these are the things. And again, we won't know for sure until we actually see the implementation of this and how it actually works and how it actually impacts the economy. But these are things we want to be paying attention to because, again, over the next year in particular, and, as, and again, going back to our, our article on our website today talking about no recession now, but coming in 2023, these are the things that we're talking about. How does all this impact the consumer, which is roughly 70% of the economy? And then the rest of the economy is imports and exports and, and capital spending and, and government hiring and these type of things. How does consumption of that bottom 70% affect that other 30% of the economy that's driven by their demand, right? Because, again, we're a demand-driven economy. It's, it's consumption and what we do that drives the economy. It's us buying cars and houses and boats and planes and all these other things that drives the economy. And so the, what we're going to be looking at two years from now is looking back at all of this and the things that we're talking about now going, yep, see, that's how that turned out. Let's not do that again. Or let's do more of that because that worked really well. Generally, it's the former. All right, wraps up the show for today. Be back tomorrow, of course, for Wednesday. Danny Ratliff will join me. We'll talk a little bit on the financial side of the economy, personal finance side of the economy and your money. Uh, that's tomorrow, of course, for the Wednesday edition. Get by the website. Again, that latest article is up. Also, our daily commentary is out, so make sure you're subscribed. Get our daily market commentary. Tells you what you need to know for today on what's going on in the markets and your money. 
It comes out every morning. We send it to you by email. So if you subscribe today, you'll get it this morning by 7.30. Write your email inbox and you'll get it every day, Monday through Friday. Keep you up to date on the markets. All right, we'll see you tomorrow. Have a great day. Realinvestmentadvice.com. It's a rich man's world.